0: From a secret location in room 100 of 540 Jack Gibbs Boulevard, this is Kraft. I'm your host, Doug Dangler. Dr. Amanda Petford-Long is an Argonne Distinguished Fellow in the Materials Science Division at Argonne National Laboratories. She began her career at the University of Oxford, was a fellow at Corpus Christi College, and served as the director for the Center for Nanoscale Materials, a U.S. Department of Energy facility. And she is a professor at Northwestern. She'll be the featured speaker at The Ohio State University's March 18th Science Sunday's talk covering how microscopy can help us understand nanomaterials. Welcome to Craft, Dr. Petford Long. Thank you. So when we discuss nanoscale, what kind of sizes are we talking about? Do you have a way maybe to help us understand the scale of the things that you're working on?
1: Yes, I can try. So... If you think of a nanometer versus the size of a meter, that would be the same ratio of size as the size of a marble is to the size of the earth. Wow. And so, yes, it's a big, they're very, very small. Um, and so when we think about nanoscience and nanomaterials, we're really dealing with any materials that are less than about 100 nanometers in size. So typically, that is the size of, you know, a virus. I mean, viruses are typically tens of nanometers. Viruses, of course, are naturally occurring, and the more interesting nanomaterials are ones that we can create and engineer, either from what we call bottom up by by just sort of mixing something up in a bucket and making nanomaterials, or top down where we basically take lots of different materials and stack them together in very, very thin layers. And those then have behave in a way that is different from the same material um, in the bulk. So I can give you one very simple example. Everybody knows what gold looks like. It's mm-hmm. gold. Uh, you make jewellery from it. Now, if you make nanoparticles of gold... And you put those nanoparticles in a liquid, and you look at the liquid, it'll, it'll look red. It doesn't look gold anymore. And in fact, that is the origin of the red color that you see in stained glass windows.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. So they were using nanomaterials in stained glass windows, probably not knowing how that was occurring.
1: Yes, that's absolutely right. They had no idea why it created this gold color, and I won't bore you with the details, but you know, that nanomaterials have been around for a very, very long time. They're not new. <laughs> mm-hmm. you so to use them.
0: besides the gold and you being used like that, what are some other nanomaterials that have been around for a long time that might surprise people to know are very different sort of formulations of things that they might otherwise know?
1: So the other one that is that is probably oldest is the use of silver uh, nanoparticles for uh, for their antimicrobial properties. And I believe that that was known, actually, to the Romans. I mean, again, they didn't know why this would have this particular property. But that's another very old use of nanomaterials. Naturally occurring na- nanomaterials, as I said, things like viruses, obviously, again, have been around for a very, very long time, and we're, we can control those now much better and learn to to use them. Mm-hmm.
0: So what are some of the ways that you, you had mentioned earlier you could throw them all together in a bucket and they will sort of create a nanomaterial or you do it in very thin layers? What are some of the ways that you're working with in your lab every day uh, if it's the bucket way or the thin layer way? What's the most popular variety?
1: So that depends very much on the application. The, the, the mixing it up in a bucket method makes nanoparticles. And I would say those have a lot of applications in chemistry. So a lot of the fuels that we use are created because we have catalysts that can make use of an organic material and change it into some other material that's useful to us. Uh, Polypropylene is an example. Polypropylene is used to make carpets and ropes and all other kinds of, of materials. And polypropylene wouldn't exist if we didn't have catalysts, which are metallic nanoparticles that will allow the polypropylene molecules to be created from other simpler molecules that you start with. So that's one example. Sunscreens get their properties that protect you from the sun from nanoparticles that are embedded in a cream or a liquid. And those, those interact with the sunlight and prevent the UV sunlight from reaching your skin. So those are two kind of bucket examples. Thinking about the thin layer examples, you know, a lot of people use computers. And although these days a lot of computers are going over to solid state drives, we still use a lot of hard disk drives. If you interrogate Google You'll get through to one of their data centers, which is masses and masses of ranks of hard disk drives. And the read heads and the media, that's the, the layer that you store the information in, and the read head is what reads that information. Both of those are created from very, very thin layers, just a few atoms thick. And by putting all those, stacking all those atom atomic layers up on top of each other you get the properties that you need to be able to store information or read information.
0: Okay, and your talk on March 18th will be covering uh, not just microscopy, but as I understand it, maybe some of your looking into the storing, the reading and writing information on computers. So. What does the future look like for storing information using nanomaterials? For example, you often hear about Bell's Law that says that the price of a machine drops by half every five years or something like that. Is is that going to continue due to the miniaturization with things like nanomaterials?
1: That's That's a very good question indeed. It amazes me that the price drops. I've worked on the materials for hard disk drives for many years and I look at how cheaply you can buy them in Best Buy. And you can buy one terabyte hard drives now and a terabyte a terabyte is one million million bytes. You, know, you can buy a, a tiny little hard drive that you can put on your hand which has, which has that amount of information or storage capacity. And I'm very impressed by, the, by how cheap they are because I know something about the amount of work that has gone into developing and designing those. As, so you're currently using nanomaterials. I mean, there's, there's no getting away from that, whether you use solid-state drives or whether you use hard disk drives. Nanomaterials are what you use to store and read and write the information. So we're already using those. As we go smaller... The problem comes because, particularly for magnetism, if you go too small, you just can't store the information any longer. I mean, there aren't enough atoms there that will behave together to store a bit of information. And so you reach a point where you have to look for a totally different way of storing the information. The same is true for solid-state drives. It's only so small that you can make a transistor before... It doesn't have the properties that you want it to have any longer. In principle, you could go to a small as storing one bit of information on an atom. You could make a one and a zero, binary information. That's how we store data these days. And you could store that one and the zero on one atom. But the problem is then you've got to be able to access that atom. You've got to be able to read it. You've got to know which atom stores which bit of information. And so there are huge challenges around that kind of technology. Um, so there are limits. There are definitely limits.
0: Yeah. How How is it going in your lab uh, to go past those limits? Is it uh, working towards a a goal that you can see in the future and point to and and say, this is where we think we'll be in five years? Or does it wait for a breakthrough that is maybe unexpected?
1: So both, actually. I mean, we're doing, in my lab, very fundamental science. So we're looking for potentially new materials, new physics that we could use to store information and then move it around, read it and write it. One of the approaches that's being taken that you've probably heard of is quantum computing. And quantum computing is, there are new developments coming in quantum computing. You have quantum bits or qubits, which are what you store the information in, and you then have to get those to talk to each other and move forward. There are quantum computers that now exist that have maybe 50 qubits, 50 bits of information but those are not big enough as yet to really, I would say, do a lot of calculations and the kind of things that people would expect to see from computers. And another approach that we're looking at, as well as a lot of different labs all around the world, is what's called um, neuromorphic computing. And that's a completely different way of sending the signals around. Neuro has to do with nerves and basically... We're trying to look at ways of designing computers that in their architecture, in the way they're designed and built, would look and function more like a human brain because with those, you can get away from a lot of the problems that you face with standard computers as you make them smaller. You need more power um, because you've got lots and lots of bits packed in very close together you get a lot of heat that's generated there's just huge issues basically Uh, i'm not going to overcome all of them myself you know this is this is going to be a concerted effort from many many researchers all around the world and what's great about science is you know we work together we work internationally we also of course work with companies in the u.s to help them to take forward their their developments and provide insights to them that they may use for developing new technologies.
0: When it's done uh, with mimicking the architecture of the human brain, has this led to sort of a deeper understanding or breakthroughs on how the brain itself is structured? Because you're studying it, trying to mimic it. Does that hold promise for other fields? uh, Because you're needing to understand, I would assume, more about how the brain functions.
1: That's an extremely good question. I would say... Um, the the work on neuromorphic computing is probably not going to help us understand how the brain works. However, there is a lot of work going on in trying to understand how the brain works, and we do some of that at Argonne. We use our X-ray synchrotron, which you can think of just as a very, very big X-ray microscope, to image the brain. We can also use electron microscopes to image the brain, and so what you do is... Basically, image a, a volume of the brain, and then you look at all the connectivity between the different neurons within that region of the brain. And combining that with with models for for how the brain might work, which we can test, ideally, well, you test it in a computer, but you don't have to test it on a neuromorphic computer. Um, but but mm-hmm. you can put those models and that those images together, those three dimensional images together to give a much better picture of exactly how the brain works but you know you can only image a very small volume at a time and so we're always looking at ways of being able to image larger volumes with the resolution that we need you know you're you're trying to image it's like trying to you can imagine trying to image the whole world but to see each individual snowflake (laughs) the window it's snowy at the moment you know it's not quite scale but it's but it's that sort of complexity and how do you how do you image something so big but with such fine detail
0: yeah that sounds like an incredibly difficult problem to try to overcome uh, and all the data that must arise from all of that uh, sort of imaging work that you're doing well Dr. Petford-Long, I really look forward to your March 18th Science Sunday's talk. And uh, it's it's free and open to the public. And we'll have more information about that at the website at crafttheshow.com. Thank you very much for talking to me today.
1: Thank you very much, Doug.
0: For more information from my guests, visit www.crafttheshow.com. This is Doug Dangler. Until next time, be creative.